Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, she is a Brooklyn girl, born and bred, still lives there now, but from the time she was born until the time we had this conversation, man, Annie Golden has lived the most fascinating life filled with creativity and music and art and loyalty. Welcome the great Annie Golden to the podcast. A-okay. Wherever you are right now, Brooklyn, New York, where I was born and bred. I am in Brooklyn, New York, too. We could have maybe done this on a stoop somewhere with masks on, muffling our, muffling our encounter. So, are you in the part of Brooklyn that you were that you grew up in? Yes, I'm a, a little further down from Park Slope, but I grew up on 13th Street and 7th Avenue, and in Park Slope. Wow. Um, and I'm a little, I'm a little further up. But uh, yeah, I'm in the, I'm within walking distance. That's incredible. Can we, let's start there. Um, Because I think Brooklyn people are the best people. My parents grew up in Brooklyn. We live right near Red Hook actually. And so we're raising our kids here and it's just a really, really special place. Can you tell me a little bit about your growing up and what, uh, what and how you ended up finding or the performing arts finding you? How did this all happen? Yeah, it totally found me. Um, It's so funny, you're a real Brooklynite if you say Red Hook, (laughs) because everybody says Carol Gardens, and you know, I'm like, yeah, it's Red Hook. It's motherless Brooklyn, yo. It's last last exit to Brooklyn. You know, it's not Carol Gardens. It's not what the realtors put a freaking doily on it, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's well. That's exactly the history. They put a doily on it, and they started yeah. calling it Carol's Gardens. I mean, absolutely. When oh, you said my pa- my parents grew up in Red Hook, I was like, yes, Brooklyn girl. <laughs> and are your were your parents also born and raised in Brooklyn? Well, I was actually, if you want to be specific, and now that everybody all things gentrified, uh, no Brooklyn. Um, I was actually uh, born uh, at Methodist Hospital, which is right over by Prospect Park on 7th Avenue and like 11th Street. Yeah. But I, but I was born in that hospital, but my parents had their first apartment in Greenpoint uh, on South Portland Avenue. So I was a baby in a Greenpoint Park. And then when my other siblings came along, um, we moved to 13th Street and 7th Avenue. So so the park with the strollers and the playgrounds and the swings and the monkey bars were, um, uh, oh, jungle gym. Yeah, monkey bars is not, yeah, you're not allowed. Um, uh, I guess it's not called that anymore. Or the seesaws or anything. That was Prospect Park. So, um, but I started in Greenpoint Park. So, um, yeah, I was, uh, I grew up on 13th Street and 7th Avenue and I'm Brooklyn born and bred. So when people you know, say, you know, uh, oh, you're a New York actor. I'm like, I'm even more than a New York actor. I'm Brooklyn born and bred. I mean, yeah. you know, that's, that's, uh, that, that's how deep it goes. So, yeah. um, yeah. And I just was, um, and then we moved out to, um, this is your Brooklyn tutorial of your neighborhoods of your zoning. Um, I moved from, uh, 13th street and 7th Avenue to, um, 
to Bay Ridge, uh, Ovington Avenue, which people only know that's actually 70th Street because it's the one over from 69th Street, which is Bay Ridge Avenue, which only Brooklyners know that, that that's called that. 69th Street is Bay Ridge Avenue, and 70th Street on some avenues is Ovington Avenue. And I moved there during high school. And then um, I went to school on Eastern Parkway uh, in Crown Heights. And um, were you and a then, public were you a public school kid or a, no, no, a Catholic uh, school kid? Catholic school girl, but all the um, all the schools were over there. There was um, a boys and girls high school. There was Clara Barton, the the nursing high school. Uh, the Botanical Gardens was over there. Um, we were on we were on Clawson Avenue and Eastern Parkway. We were um, Bishop McDonald Memorial High School for Girls, and it's now um, a school for the deaf right on Eastern Parkway and Clawson Avenue. Wow. Have you ever lived anyplace else for extended periods of time? Well, it's kind of interesting because when people would run into me, they don't do it anymore. But when um, I was making a name for myself, I guess, people would say, you know, uh, oh, oh, you're still doing that acting thing? Oh, you're still doing that uh, band thing? Oh, you're, st oh, you're still performing? And I go, yeah, because uh, I still live in the same place in Brooklyn, but I travel the world. Right. You know, so, yeah, so it, yeah. yeah, it's kind of that. They go, oh, you still live at the same address? And I'm like, yeah, because I travel the world with my work, yo. You know, so. Totally. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I, I, I went to high school on Eastern Parkway, and that was um, an all-girls school, uh, Bishop McDonald. And then I didn't go to college. I was working class, so I just um, uh, studied to be uh, a secretary. Academic was those uh, for college prep and commercial. There were two courses, academic, which prepared you for more school, and commercial, which uh, prepared you to go out into the world and um, get a job and not go, to, not go to college, which is not an option these days. But then it was, you know, that was a luxury to go to college, not a necessity. And so um, I, um, I started being a secretary and then I started going, you know, I would go out on weekends uh, to clubs and I followed this band and then I became a member of the band, the shirts, and then we crossed the bridge uh, from, you know, downtown Brooklyn to uh, Lower East Side Manhattan, Manhattan Bridge. And we went to the Bowery and we played CBGBs. And that's when Milos Foreman, you know, Worlds Apart, Academy Award-winning film director for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, came either slumming or talent scouting, depending on how you look at it. And he found himself at CBGBs one night and I was on stage and that was my Schwab's, my Schwab's drugstore. If anybody knows Hollywood history, uh, Lana Turner was discovered at the counter of um, Schwab's drugstore um, on Hollywood Boulevard in LA because she wore a certain sweater one day and had a really nice fine figure. So I was discovered at CBGB's on the Bowery, which is a totally different thing, but um, uh, same result. But I told, I told Joe Iconis right before I uh, tried to connect with you through technology, which finally we did, I said that Annie's story is so the punk version of Schwab's. And I oh, yes, think, so you knew it, yeah. Yes, yes, and I think that is a story to be told and a movie to be made. I don't think that's happened before. Um, yeah. I certainly haven't seen it, and it's one of the most unique, incredible, incredible stories. Um, yes. The shirts were really, well, well, can we back up a minute? Because I love that you went from, you know, Catholic high school to, uh, the punk scene, which was at its height and really like exploding in New York at the time that you joined this band, The Shirts. And I'm wondering, um, and by the way, guys, there's YouTube footage of Annie singing with this band, and it's so thrilling to see it in all of her glorious punkness. Um, <laughs> and just this voice, I mean, I mean, this incredible singular voice. And so did you sing before? Did you always sing? How did you find your voice? Um, obviously, it's evolved and became something 
uniquely suited for Broadway as well and all of the different ways that you perform. But when did that connection happen for you in terms of expressing yourself artistically through song and finding yourself in the shirts, not just as a fan, but as the lead singer? Yeah, I, um, you know, I started, of course, then in Catholic grammar school to, you know, continue our Brooklyn travelogue. I mean, like I said, I was 13, 13th Street and 7th Avenue. And then down 14th Street and 4th Avenue was a parochial school, a Catholic school, Holy Family School, which is now ga Gallery Players, a local regional uh, theater that does work. I was invited to a production of Hair and I walked to the theater and I went, this, this is my old gym. This, wow. this is my school building. As I was walking, I went, there's no, there's no theater down here. Where am I going? Right. And then I walked into the building and I went, this is my old grammar school. Where are the nuns? Where yeah. are the nuns? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, so uh, that, w that, was a, that was a revelation, you know, after the fact. But um, sure. so, uh, so I was in Holy Family School and, you know, watching Million Dollar Movie every night on my father's knee you know, uh, which is Million Dollar Movie was at night um, on one of the, you know, not major networks. And um, it was on Channel 9. And um, they would show the same movie every night uh, for the week. So I became like a savant. I became like a, a cinephile. I, I memorized movies that were, you know, from the 40s and 50s and 60s and 30s and, you know, because my father was, you know, he liked movies. And my father was also a band singer and a drummer. So I was exposed to that. I would, we would go as families to barbecues and he would sit in with his bandmates and he would be on the drums and he would also sing lead, you know, jazz standards and stuff like that. So I got that from him and, um, when it would be musicals on the Million Dollar Movie, you know, I would absorb that. But then when Milos Forman came to CBGB's and put me in a major motion picture, that was a dream I dare not dream, that my life became what I wouldn't have even imagined it could have been. So you weren't, to, you weren't acting yet? No, I was just, no, I was in... I was in high school, then I graduated, then I became a secretary. I was a secretary at the very, uh, at the very organization, uh, the, the film studio, United Artists. I was, it's right in the theater district there, 729 uh, 7th Avenue on 49th Street. I worked in that building as a secretary at United Artists. And oh then God. when I got the movie and I started working, um, I got the movie and then I started to work temporary after the movie was over. I was still, you know, playing with my band and touring with my band or recording with my band. So I became uh, a temp, which we call a temp, which is like a sub. And so I subbed at um, ABC television PR. And then years later, nobody really has my story, Alana. Uh, years later, when I was on set of Orange is the New Black, I got to tell Kate Mulgrew, that I was a secretary in the Nielsen ratings department when she started with Ryan's Hope on this the soap opera. So <laughs> first of all, watched Ryan's Hope, know it. I cannot <laughs> believe that you're literally a girl in a band. And oh wait, so here was the one question. Yeah. That kind of like singing in that band, how yeah. did that happen? Because that was the but, launch pad for everything. It, it was the launch pad for everything. I have those guys to thank. I have Milos Foreman to thank. I have CBGB's and Hilly Crystal to thank. Um, and that was 40 years ago. But um, when I, you know, when I was a, when I was a secretary, I would go out, and, you know, see that band. But in school, I sang in the choir and um, I had a really good ear. And if they needed an alto, I was an alto. If they needed a soprano, I could be a soprano, which they didn't have that when you were, you know, like 11. Right. They didn't have that skill set. You were one thing and that's where you landed. And then I was like the swing. I mean, you know, they would say, well, 
I think Annie can sing that part. Annie, can you sing this part? You know, meanwhile, I was sitting with the altos. You know what I mean? So um, yeah. it was it was great training ground um, even then that I didn't, I could not have foreseen, you know, what it would be. So but when uh, you were going out at night, was were the shirts a, a band that you just happened upon or were you connected to them socially? Well, they were kind of a Brooklyn band. I mean, right. so that's what that was, you know, I was, it was the disco era. So I was going to um, clubs, you know, to dance and um, live music had moved over to like the Lower East Side with, um, you know, the Diplomat Hotel, Les Jardins with the, uh, Les Jardins would have a disco after midnight, but before midnight they would have original bands like the New York Dolls and, you know, stuff like that. So that whole scene. Yeah, which is, you know, heady stuff and great, and you know, right on the right on the tails of uh, Andy Warhol, which was before my time. But you know that that scene was still still lingering. And then, um, uh, so I would follow this band because they were a Brooklyn band, you know, and they had a storefront, um, which is now called you know Sun Sunset Park, sure. which is still called still called Sunset Park, Fifty Third yeah. Street, Fifty Third Street and Eighth Avenue. They had a storefront. But they were from St. Michael's and I was from Holy Family. So when you when you would see these bands play and then they, you know, and you were Brooklyn still, you were inflated, you hadn't gone across the bridge yet right. to, you know, La La Land or, you know, Emerald City. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you you were just in your own little, you know, niche. Yeah. You were like, oh, I went, oh, I graduated St. Michael's. I was like, oh, St. Michael's on Fourth Avenue and you know, in the, in 49th street. And they were like, yeah, I graduated from that school. And yeah. And, and Bob was the year before me and, uh, and Ronnie was the year after me. And so my band was all cousins and my band was all, um, uh, classmates. So that was kind of interesting that I already got that sense of community in a rock yeah. band, Yeah, you know? So I started sitting in with them when they would do gigs. I would, I would, you know, show up and then they'd be like, Annie's here. You want to do, do you want to do uh, Jefferson airplane? Annie's here. Do you want to do um, uh, Rolling Stones? Give me shelled. Annie's here. Do you, do you want her to sit in, you know? And so I would sit in with them. And then after a while uh, they asked me to join cause they were writing, you know, original music. But then when they wrote the original music, they wrote it in their key. And they, they were street music, you know, self-taught musicians, so they didn't transpose anything. So again, the education started and the voice training started with me singing, you know, an octave above these guys with the melody. Right. You know, then when I got into theater, people were, you know, people would say, oh, no, it's, yeah, no, she's not going to be able to sing it because this, she's not going to be able to sing it an octave above she's going to have to do a third or a fifth and and then you know I would do it I remember when I met Joe Iconis at NYU at the musical theater program and he was doing his presentation on his black box presentation for his uh, uh for his uh, thesis grade and he wrote the black suits and he wrote Mrs. Waring and he and and he wrote to the department head and he said an Annie Golden type and Marie Costanza had just, um, the department head had just uh, produced a piece that I was the title role in. And it was the last thing that Eartha Kitt did live on stage. Wow. And it was called Mimi LeDuc. And this came across Marie's desk. And she called Joe in and she said, um, you're saying Annie Golden type. Um, how do you mean? And he's like, oh, the nosy, the nosy neighbor lady, but... But, you know, she's a suburban, you know, uh, lady, but she, but she, back in the day, uh, she, you know, represented Bowie and she toured, she knew Mick Jagger and she knew Lou Reed. And so I feel like that's an Annie Golden type. And Marie Costanza said, what if I can get Annie Golden to play Mrs. Waring? So again, another star-crossed, you know, Stars sure. are aligned. I mean, I have my I have my Mark Shaman Scott Whitman story as well. I mean, I got lucky twice in my career to get the foot in the door of brilliant composers and arrangers and directors. I mean, right at the beginning of their to come to be there at the beginning of what yes, has become these legendary iconic careers. 
So you're playing at CBGB's. I mean, this is something that never happens except you get somehow sprinkled with fairy dust over and over again. And then you show up and you're so crazy talented that it's not a fluke, obviously. But you're playing with the shirts at CBGB's yeah. in yeah. the late 70s. Mm -hmm. Milos Forman, who is at that time at really at the height of his, uh, you know, notoriety and just yes. being the most specially, like a, a true artist, just a yes. true artist on every level. And Hair had been a huge hit as a musical, and now he's making a movie, and he's out one night, as you said, either slumming or scouting, we don't know, <laughs> and sadly, we have lost him, so we can't ask him at this moment. Well, um, I've, I've, I've talked to him about yes. it. Yes, so, so how does it go from you're playing with the shirts to you're starring in what became and still remains one of the greatest musical films of all time in and and one of the most moving theatrical experiences one can experience right it's just yeah and we just Treat we Williams just, John Savage Nell Carter I mean on and on and on Beverly D'Angelo tell me the story of how this how your Schwab story really happened well I you know I was you know I was playing with my band at CBGB's and he came down and he came down unannounced. Milos came down unannounced. And, um, and you know, and he, he's told me the story. Uh, he said, I actually was, I was talent scout. Okay. He said, you know, okay. he said, oh, Anichka, you're so fun. No, not slumming. Come on. I, I was looking, I was looking for fresh faces and, um, and voices. Yeah. So he, uh, he came down with Geraldine Chaplin and oh Lauren, Lauren Hutton <laughs> oh model. God. So Geraldine, Geraldine Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter, and um, you know, and uh, and Lauren Hutton, uh, the what? model of, of the day, exactly. His arm, supermodel of the time, absolutely. And he comes, you know, he, he comes into the club unannounced, and he gets a table, and he sees the whole night, the whole night of shows, and then he goes up to Hilly Crystal at the door on his way out, and he says who he is, and everybody's buzzing because it's a club, so you know, you know everybody. And, right. uh, you know, and they start going, oh, you know, uh, Milos Forman is here. Everybody's like, who the fuck is that? You know, and they say, oh, you know, uh, oh, uh, he's Academy Award winning film. You know, and then, of course, Annie Golden, cine cinephile, you know, I guess, yes. savant, you know, go, oh, uh, uh, Academy Award winning uh, director, uh, expatriate uh, Czechoslovakian, uh, you know, uh, for Cuckoo's Nest, um, you know, Michael Douglas produced and, the, and, and Jack Nicholson starred. and you know, so, um, so I got all the low down and then Milos on leaving says, you know, I'd like to set up an evening where I could come down and see young boys and girls. I need, I need people like that girl with all those rough, those rough characters, all those rough boys. I need people like that. I need people who look young and fresh faced. So Hilly said, okay, tell me when you're coming back. And then he put he put the shirts on the bill with Orchestra Luna, who were out of Boston, and they had Carla DeVito and Liz Gallagher as um, female singers. Right. And then he put uh, the Talking Heads, because Tina Weymouth was the bass player, and Chris Franz was uh, their, you know, their drummer. And he put some, you know, he put, he, he put some bands together. Uh, the Laughing Dogs, all those boys looked like teenagers, so he put, he put them on the bill. And Milos came down and he watched the whole night. And then we were in support of the Live at CBGB album at that time, because all the bands that didn't get signed at that time, like Blondie got signed, the Ramones got signed. Um, were the Helen, Talking Heads signed at that point? The Talking Heads got signed. Yeah. So all, the all the bands that didn't get signed, Hilly recorded them live and put out, a band, uh, put out an album live at CBGB's. So the shirts were on there, the laughing dogs were on there, um, a few other people were on there. And so we were in, we were touring in support of that album. And I think we we're in Connecticut and um, we got a call, the laughing dogs got a call and the shirts got a call saying, we want you to audition nine o'clock Monday morning at this, you know, so we had just been playing until three in the morning in Connecticut. So we just all came back to New York and me and Jimmy Accardi from the Laughing Dogs, 
we were all auditioning for the ca the casting agents. And um, what did they ask you, know, you to do? We just came into this big, this, this huge room, you know, it was a dance studio, this huge room with, you know, wall to ceiling uh, windows and mirrors and this, uh, this um, grandstand of a table with people sitting behind it. You didn't know who they were. And you walked into the room. And so we just stayed up. We stayed at, there was, you know, it's horn and hard up, but there was a place called Child's, which was a 24 hour greasy spoon, um, a la Bomb and Gilead. And yeah. so we, so we, we stayed up, you know, that night and we, you know, we went straight, straight to the audition in the morning, the other people went home, they were, you know, sleeping. So we went and we, and we just walked into the room and they said, can you sing us something? And, and we sang something and they gave us what, you know, what we learned later were, were called sides. They gave us a piece of paper and you had to read off it and your character and, you know, and, ju and just be crazy and exuberant. And, you know, and so I was out of my element, you know, my, my uh, my brows were were bleached uh, blonde, so they would uh, not appear on my brow bone because I was so into David Bowie, and right. my hair was about two inches two inches high in the front. It's called a mullet now, but then it was like a chop. It was like a rock and roll chop, so it was all short on the side and the top, and then long in the back, like a mullet, you know. So um, yeah, so I I went in and I and I I sang something and. And the guy who was playing the audition was Mark Shaman. And that's how you guys met. That's how I met Mark. Wow. And so that, that was great because when he was doing his Dementos at the production company on 28th Street, he was doing his musical that he wrote with Robert I. Rubinsky, um, the Dementos. He had a character called Spike Heel and he wanted me to play that character, but he couldn't find me because I wasn't, I wasn't in the union. I wasn't an actor. I wasn't, you know. So uh, I was under the radar. So I had a day gig at Barney's. I was answering the phones at, at, at Barney's on 17th Street and 7th Avenue. So he called Barney's and I answered the phone. He went, hi, I'm looking for, I'm looking for an employee. I said, okay, let me, let me switch you to personnel, which is now called Human Resources. And he said, um, and I, I transferred him and he went and they were like, well, we'll switch you back to where she is. And then they switched him back to me. And uh, he said, yeah, I, I think I'm looking for you. Are you, are you ready, Goldman? And I was like, yeah. And I said, please hold, because I was, you know, taking all the calls. And then, um, you know, and then he said, could you come over to my house? I'd like to teach you some songs. And, and Wait, is, uh, that, is that before or after you shot the film? Um, this was, at, this was, the film was not um, released yet. Okay. So you had shot it. Was Mark involved? Was was Mark Shaman involved uh, in the actual making of Hair? Did he teach you guys music, or he was only the audition pianist? He played all the auditions. Got it. So, so he was. He was. That's why he. You know, I walked into the room. I didn't know what to sing. I was. I was like, I don't know. I don't know what you want me to sing. You know. And then I had a biography of uh, Judy Garland by Gerald Frank in my hand. Because you know we had to stay up from three to to nine at a at a greasy spoon. That's exactly. why I say my my life was bomb and Gilead. You know, yes. so um, so I, I you know I read a uh, a biography of Judy Garland and Mark said, you know, what do you have there? And I said, what? And he goes, what do you have there? What's the book? And I went, oh, it's um, Ger uh, Gerald Frank. It's uh, Judy. It's it's an autobiography. He goes, I know Judy Garland. I said, yeah. He goes, you like Judy Garland? I said, yeah, love her. And he went, what can you do? And then he started tinkling the ivories. And he, he did Over the Rainbow a couple of times. He did um, Someone to Watch Over Me in a couple of keys. And so he really saved my audition. So he also got me, he also got me the gig because they were like, okay, can you sing this? Can you sing that? And also at the grandstand who was there was, you know, Gaunt McDermott, uh, Milish Foreman, the musical director for the film, Tom Pearson, um, you know, that, uh, you know, our beautiful uh, casting people. So, you know, so everybody was there and it was really Mark who was able to, 
and then he then he looked for me. Then he had to right. look for me for his own thing. So, but Annie, not only did you get into the movie, you're like the female lead of this movie. Like you are one of there's there's a few of uh you know there it, it, it's a huge ensemble and everyone knows the movie, so I don't even have to explain it. But you are so front and center in this story. You'd never acted before. Um, so I have a couple of questions. Are you wearing a wig or did it, was there enough time for your hair to grow out by the time you shot the film? No, you can see it. It's permed. So it's right. like, a, but it's your it's hair, like, but it's a poodle, you know, it's short, it's short on the sides and the top and the front. So they permed it. And that's, you know, that's what you learn when you get into another, another genre that you don't know. I mean, those those film people that you know they they brought me in you know this mutt and they said you know uh here this is the milos milos has chosen annie to be genie and nothing is beyond them they can make miracles right. happen and they just said okay we're just gonna we're just gonna lightly color in her brows until they grow back grow back she hasn't shaved them she's just bleached them and also um we'll just perm this so it'll be curly and it'll, you know, just look wild. So Treat Williams, John Savage, Beverly D'Angelo are all at that point, this is not their first movie. They are all, they're all rising stars at that mm -hmm. time. Yes. How does, how does, I mean, the genius of that movie is Milos Forman hiring you along with that cast. Um, Donnie Dacus and Dorsey Wright. Right. Um, how do you, how does he negotiate that? How does he integrate all of these different types of actors, some with zero experience, some with tons of experience, and create an ensemble and a family? Because the entire film really lands on us believing that this is a family of these yeah. flower children running around New York City. Um, and I love that this Brooklyn girl gets to shoot on location in Central Park. I mean, it must have just been extraordinary for you to be a hometown girl um, yeah because that was you know that was where I would go on weekends before I went to the club I would go shopping you know in the village and buy my incense and my peasant blouses and my <laughs> and my love beads yeah, and then I would and then I would go uptown to Central Park and I would hang out at the fountain or hang out at the band shell and uh, listen to the new musicians busking and everything and just you know meet people, true people who, uh, you know, didn't have a home. Now they're called homeless, but they were, you know, they were on the streets and, you yeah. know, real hippies. So, yeah. I mean, so, so how did Milos, did they, did they work with you? Did they have a coach work with you or did you guys get to rehearse? It is, I mean, we haven't even mentioned the incredible Twyla Tharp who choreographed yeah. this whole movie and, yeah. and is in it also, if you guys watch, she's in the white, kind of flowing dress in the big, um, in the big Central Park scene. So yeah. I, is that correct? Am I remembering that correctly? That You're absolutely okay. correct. She's okay. in the, she's in the be-in at the park and then it becomes the acid trip at the, yeah. at the wedding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. how are you, I mean, this is obviously from everything you're telling me, you are a girl who is game. You are game for the experience, pretty fearless. But this yeah. still had to be, you know, this is a huge learning curve. It's not improvising lines. You have to say the script and sort of learn all the ways to be in a huge feature film. So can you talk a little bit about how he uh, brought you into that fold? But they actually did do that. I mean, they actually did do some improv. Um, Milos, uh, Mil uh, Milos called me, you know, we did the rounds of the, you know, the, the, the theater studios, the dance studios and the, the open calls and um, all these grungy teenagers, the, you know, together. And then I, I did not realize, but I was going like, you know, the next round. And um, Milos invited me to um, his home uh, on Central Park West. And he said, uh, you know, can you come at this time? And we're just gonna have a, a meeting. You know, I said, do I have to bring anything? And he was like, no, you don't bring anything. Okay, great. And, so I sat across from the Hampshire house um, on, the, on the wall of Central Park. I sat across there going, what the heck? You know, what am I doing? I'm so out of my element. Yeah. So intimidated. Um, you know, just felt like I was, you know, out of my depth. Um, 
and didn't want it yet. I didn't want it until I was at CBGB's and I, and I, I danced for Twyla all afternoon and then went to a sound check for the gig. And I was sitting in the dressing room crying and the guys were like, what's the matter? And I was like, well, I, I danced today. I can't dance. I mean, mm. I, you know, I really thought I had a shot at this, but you know, you know yeah so I can't you know five six seven eight I don't know what I'm doing and they do this combination I can't remember it and you know and still to this day you know I don't go to dance calls but if I'm there with the ensemble it's like you know you gotta hold for the diva because she doesn't remember the combination (laughs) you know (laughs) whatever five six seven eight is it the left is it the left Breathe, Annie, breathe. You're going to faint if you don't breathe. You know. So well, I saw thing. the full Monty. I saw, I've seen many, you, you have figured it out. Because once we in the audience are seeing the show, no one knows that you feel that way. It's, uh, <laughs> it's integrated. So, well, oh, good. you know, if you, if you want it, if you, that's my working class roots, the oldest of six kids. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you want it, then just get it and just be worthy of it and just be a sponge and don't ask questions just listen and learn I mean that's what I did I I wanted it and Milos wanted me and so you know I got it and I wasn't gonna blow it and I mean you know Treat had done several Broadway shows and this was before he did Prince of the City right after that okay and And what about the deer hunter had John done that John had John John had just come uh, from the Deer Hunter. Yeah. Um, in fact, he 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 was he was filming us, and he had to go back uh, to do some reshoots. And Milos spoke to Michael Cimino, and said, "And this is all you know conversations with me and Milos because Milos knew that I was in a brave new world, and that I, and that if he imparted stories to me and facts to me." that I would remember the names, I would remember the situations, and I would apply, I would apply the story to my own career. And so, you know, he said, he said that um, he had to call Michael Cimino when, when they asked to loan out John to do some reshoots for Deer Hunter and go back to Thailand. Milos said, I can work my schedule. You know, people are, you know, Cimino was a young Turk too. I mean, he was a, a newcomer as well. So, they all work in tandem with each other. And Miller said, well, I have him, but I can work around him. You know, tell me when you need him. Wow. And then John would go back to Thailand. But John had done basic training as Claude Bukowski in hair. And he fell on his bayonet. And he had this gash in his chin. And um, Miller said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sending you, you know, damaged goods. I mean, if you're going to reshoot and edit, He's going to have a gash in his chin that he didn't have, you know, when, when, you, when you filmed it. And Chimino said, Milos, he's in a cage in, in, in a river, rat infested. I don't think anybody's going to notice that he's got a gash in his chin. I mean, it's war. So, you know, thanks for telling me, but it's really okay. Right. So it wasn't like a glamour role, so he didn't have to worry. Right. Milos was saying... In essence, Anichka, I was telling him that I was sending him damaged goods, um, you know, for continuity. It wasn't going to matter. And I would just like absorb right. all, all these stories. Yes, of course. You know, I'm sure John doesn't even remember that because it was 40 years ago. Yeah. You know, but I remember. And we just recently, I had to book out of um, Broadway Bounty Hunter at the Greenwich House um, because we had a 40th reunion of the, of the, of the film cast. So and, we And all, what was that? Was it, what was the context for that? And where um, was it? Milo, Milos was on the board of um, renovating the theater to its um, art deco glory uh, in Connecticut. It's called the Avalon theater. And they were doing uh, a fundraising benefit and Milos's widow, Martina, she suggested why don't we try to get the film cast together? Why don't we show the film and have them do a Q&A as a tribute? Because we, we had just lost Milos in April, and this was in August. Well, so. my fantasy, as we watch right now, all of these casts reuniting to raise money for the Actors Fund and Broadway Cares, yeah. and is to do a hair reunion concert 
I just think that would be the most mind blowing, you know, I know it's hard to get everyone. It's always hard to get the whole band back together, but maybe we could get some of the band back together because that would be, I don't know, that would give us a reason to get through the day. Well, I was actually, uh, the reason we're here is to talk about Ghost Light Records um, release of uh, the cast album of Broadway Bounty Hunter. Yes. um, I had worked with um, uh, Kurt Deutsch on um, uh, One Night Only, Actors Fund, Hair in Concert, when I was at Playwrights Horizons and People Be Heard. Um, Seth Rudetsky called me and said, would you do, would you sing Frank Mills in this one night only on your night off at the New Amsterdam Theater? And I was like, um, but don't you want some young chippy from Footloose or, um, you know, Saturday Night Live? That, that's what was on Broadway at the time. I said, don't you want someone from there to sing Frank Mills? Because I'm long in the tooth for Frank Mills. And he was like, no, we want you to do it. And I like, Annie, I just okay. watched that. I just watched that performance because you can find these things. And the thing that I have 40, year, 40 years of my career is on YouTube. So from, CB, from CBGBs to anything else. Well, right now, I usually get so mad at all of these things being bootlegged and, you know, streamed. But now at this time of isolation, it's been like the salve for my desire to see beautiful creativity. And it's exciting live. But I have to say the thing that is so extraordinary when one watches you singing that song, because someone Mm -hmm. had the good sense to film it, is how transforming, it it is so transformative because you walk out a grown-up human that is Annie Golden and within seconds, First of all, you're so limber. The way you sit on the floor and you're still able to do that with your legs. I don't know if you're a yoga person, but already I was like, how is she even sitting like that? I just freaking collapsed in my, you know, that was, but that's not, but that's my band training. That's my, that, that's my CBGB's training yeah. to just collapse like that. You know? Well, it's really effective, especially when you're singing that unbelievably beautiful song. So I just have to say, um, everyone involved in that night was so right to have you do it. A, because it's your song and you own it and it's yours and you lived it. Um, And your voice just remains so capable of doing all the things that you did, you know, decades ago. And and to skip forward a little bit to Broadway Bounty Hunter, which is one of my all-time favorite musicals and maybe it's so hard. No one can make me choose which Joe Iconis musical I love most. They're all beloved children, but the marriage that began when you described Joe saying Annie Golden type, and then actually what about Annie Golden and that creative marriage that began all those years ago that we know landed in the culmination of this love for you when they wrote this musical for you called Broadway Bounty Hunter. I was one of the lucky ones to get to see it at the Greenwich, is it the Greenwich House Theater or the Greenwich Theater? It's the Greenwich House Theater. The Greenwich yeah. House Theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really but was... it's also, it's owned by Ars Nova now, so. Right. But yeah. that was just the perfect, perfect kind of marriage of space and peace. It was just mm-hmm. the most exciting thing to be so close to you while you, um, I don't know, were, were starring in this musical that was written for you and that sort of made the best use of all of the things that you're so great at. Because the other thing that you're so remarkable at doing is just, you know, not everyone can be the kind of actress you are and the singer you are and the comedian that you are. Like not everyone has all of those skills in one package and you do. Now, by the way, because this is Zoom, I think we just have, we may or may not be allowed to keep going. So if it's okay with you, if we do get cut off, I will re-invite you and we can finish up again. I'll save this Absolutely. Uh, you yeah. know, I don't want, just in case, I don't know if it cuts us off without warning. So I'm just putting it out because it took us a while to get started. Um, yeah, and I so also, forgive I, the lo- interruption. I lost you for a while. So I was like, uh-oh, what's happening? So okay. we might be, yeah. Okay. So I think maybe it was Zoom warning me about something. Um, was that, was the, 
was the, and by the way, I also want to say Annie Golden has been one of the busiest women during this stay home quarantine because she also recorded this amazing podcast, which is a, a musical podcast called Bleeding Love. And so I also encourage people to listen to that because we have time to listen to great things. And she also lends her voice and dramatic acting skills to that. So that is not an aside, just added information of more Annie Golden that you can find out in the world. So much content out there. So much content, baby. Um, Annie, uh, did the cast of Hair, and we'll move on because there's so many incredible things you've done, but is that a cast that remained close with each other after the, the production was done? We are, um, we, uh, I always kept in touch with everybody. Yeah. So they kind of relied on me but um, I actually was close with Milos Forman uh, afterwards because he gave me my career and he told me I should continue. And uh, I have, so everything that I had going on, I would keep in touch with him. And then when we lost him, as I said, in April of last year, um, I was invited by the family to go to Prague and uh, sing at his memorial, which oh, there wow. was a documentary of his life. So uh, what I did was I sang Walking in Space and Good Morning Starshine with a famous Czechoslovakian rock band called Meteor. And then at the end of the night, I sang with the Prague Philharmonic, who had been playing the, the soundtrack of Amadeus all night with their, with their maestro, their conductor. And then I got up and sang Frank Mills with the Prague Philharmonic. That must have been glorious. And, you know, you know, I took my little recorder and I put it on my seat when I went up to sing. So I have the audio and they're making, and his sons, his, um, he has two sets of twins, Milos Forman. Oh, wow. Tw 20 years apart. Oh my God. Two sets of identical twins. And when I said to him, Milos, you should be in the Guinness World Book of Records. And he said, Anichka, I already am for something else. I said, shut up. <laughs> that was our relationship. I and love so it. he has two, he has twin boys. They call them the Czech twins, Peter and Matej, who I'm closer to because I've, I met them at the time. They were 12 when I met Milos or 16 when I met Milos. Right. And then he has, um, with his first wife, Vera, their mother is Vera, and I know her as well. And then he has um, his also Czechoslovakian wife, but when he became an American citizen on the set of Hair, I wasn't called that day. And our assistant director, Michael Hausman, said to me, you want to come down to the set tomorrow? Come for lunch. We're going to break for lunch at 2 o'clock. And I was like, oh, but I'm not called. And he was like, no, but you want to come. So I was like, okay. So I got on the train and I went into Central Park and I walked to the movie set and they rolled out a cake because he had gotten his American citizenship Wow. Uh, that morning. Wow. So, um, so his American twins uh, were born while he was making Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey and, uh, and Courtney Love. So they're called Jimmy and Andy, Jim Carrey and Andy Kaufman. So... So he has two sets of twins, 20 years apart, identical boys. So That's incredible. I know. That's incredible. So is this, so you do that movie and then, I mean, you didn't even have an agent. This is like you, this is just this scrappy girl kind of finding herself in this moment. It becomes yeah. a phenomenon. Suddenly you're on every talk show. You're at, at some point you're, you're singing on David Letterman, you know Paul Schaefer. I mean, you just know all these people and all yeah. these opportunities are happening. At some point, I assume you get an agent. Yeah, I get an agent and it's not, you know, it's not a stupid story. It's a, you know, Six Degrees of Annie Golden story. Um, it's Kevin Huvain. He's a junior agent at William Morris Agency and he reaches out to me. And I'm still, I don't have an agent, but I'm doing, you know, intermittent acting gigs and I'm still touring with my band and working as a secretary. And he, and he says, 
um, I, you know, I, uh, can I take you to lunch? And he said, I took you to lunch because I don't have my own office at William Morris. I just have like a desk and I didn't want to invite you in. And I didn't want everybody to see you because I want to bring you into the agency. And that way I said, is that good for you? Because then I learned that too. I go, is that good for you? And he's like, yeah, no, that'd be a feather in my cap. And I'm like, okay. And I said, but how do you know me? And he said, I said, did you come see my band? Or, you know, and he was like, no, actually, your band played my orientation at my high school. Okay, so that's Kevin Huvain who gets thanked by, you know, Meryl Streep. Yeah. And who started CAA. Got you it. You know, with Got Brian it. Lord. You know, yeah. I mean, so those are my stories. And then when, he, then when he left the William Morris Agency, he didn't take me with him. Right. Well, that's so. That's but I mean, lost. no. But he got me started, and to yeah. this day, we're still in touch. And he reaches out and he says, "You know, oh, I love Norma, and Genji Cohen is so smart, and yeah. I'm so happy for your success." And you know, and also you can't hold grudges. Like people would say to me, "But, but he didn't take you when he when he started CAA. He didn't take you. I mean, were you angry?" And I, I was also learning the business, so I. So I would say, you know, I would say, yeah, but he took all the, he took, he took all the box office people. He wasn't going to take me. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't box office, you know. Right. It was a, right. Took, yeah, he took, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, he, you know, he, he took the, he took the box office people, you know. And so, you know, it was really fun. And then you go, you go to William Morris and you go to another agency, then you go to another agency and then you say, you know, you kind of say, okay, uh, this person doesn't get me anymore. This person reveres me with some kind of melancholy, like uh, my time has passed, you know? Yeah. And so then you go to LA and you align yourself with, um, with a manager. And then the manager, you know, has a breakfast meeting with you. And he says, you know, damn, you look better in person than you do on television. I'm like, oh, you're so silly. He goes, no, honestly, you're freaking ageless. You know, I, and so he takes me on and he brings me to another agency and he brings me, and then I went on tour with my uh, duo, my singer-songwriter duo in the 90s. I had, and that's also on YouTube, Golden Carrillo, and I started writing songs and- Got it. And then- and then he says to me, you know, there was a scandal at the agency and there was some embezzlement, and, but I'm going to align you with another agency. And but when you come back, you're going to have to do the dog and pony show. You know, uh, you're going to have to have meetings. And I was like, OK. And then he went, OK, no meetings. Somebody wanted you. They snatch you up in a, in a minute. So let's have a meeting. And if you like her, let's go with her. So, you know, so it was so it was really all these people I I owe you know, my second chapter, my third chapter, you know, my, my start, I, I, all of these people. And to be so lucky to have, um, you know, Joe Iconis, yeah. but to have had lightning strike twice in my career that I came up with Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. Yeah. And then when they did smash and they went to London to work on Mary Poppins returns and uh, Charlie and the chocolate factory, they were in London. They hand the mantle over to Joe Iconis, who they found through me because I was in his clique. Right. So it's kind of so great. That, it's so you know, beautiful. It's yeah. so much family and connection and, mm -hmm. and people who just want to do great work. I mean, all of those people keep putting out incredible work and want to work with their friends. And that kind of loyalty is so moving to me. And obviously, um, they just love you. I mean, not just because you're so lovable, your talent. I mean, you were instrumental in getting hairspray off the ground. I mean, you sent those demos for them and, and yeah. all of the things that those demos led to. I mean, it's incredible. It's so incredible. And it's just, I mean, if you appreciate and your eyes are wide open as you, you know, as you roll with this, I mean, I said to the girls on Orange is the New Black, I said to the, you know, because all of us are theater people, Leah Delaria, Beth Fowler, uh, Dale Souls, Lori Tang Chan. I mean, we're all, um, you know, we're, we all come from theater. So, um, you know, and musical theater, I would say to them, you know, hey, listen, Michael R. Jackson, Max Vernon, Shana Taub, 
You want to get your foot in that door, Charlie Rosen. You want to get your foot in that door because they're all going to need the nosy neighbor lady, the pixelated grandma, the spinster aunt, the old maid. They're all going to need those characters and we're that demographic. Yep. And speaking of that, that was, you know, theater, which is our life, is also kind of niche. You can, you can go about your life in a more um, anonymous way when you do a lot of plays, as long as you stay out of the Times Square area. But Orange is the New Black, I mean, that has become, that is a show that became uh, a critic's darling and an audience darling and so of, and pop culture at the same time. So Um, did you find that you were getting recognized a lot and all over again for this new thing? Oh yeah, that was, that was a new thing. And I, you know, and I have to say, I have, um, on my Instagram, I have this, um, posting hashtag I miss hugs and I post pictures of me hugging my family, my castmates backstage, complete strangers. Um, so if you go there, you'll see, Oh, Oh, it's so-and-so and so-and-so and oh, and it's Joy Connors and uh, Lauren Marcus and oh, it's Tiara Knight and his husband Patrick Leahy or oh, who's that? Oh, that's her sister and her nephew. You know what right. I mean? So, um, right. Right. But, it, but it's, you know, I miss hugs. And so I did go, I did not go easily into that good night with the, with the notoriety mm-hmm. because I would be, you know, at a public place having, having, a dinner or drinks waiting to go to the theater with a friend and someone would come up to me and want to hug me or someone would want to touch on me or someone would sure I was already claustrophobic and I was already a bit of a germaphobe with people you know at opening nights um you know they have that platter of food and they want to congratulate you and they come over and they spit food into your tear duct you know it was you know so it's (laughs) You know, it's it's um it's a learning curve and it's a gracious. You know, you need to know how to uh, negotiate and navigate through that. So I know, but that character, you know, there are some characters on that show that no one would want to go up to because they'd be terrified. Yeah. And your character's heart is just how she is received yes. by the audience and her vulnerability. And of course, the episode where you go from being someone who is mute. To yeah. sing so beautifully. I mean, that was a really chilling, beautiful experience as a viewer, and it and it kind of went far beyond a TV show moment. It kind of broke through the screen, yeah. and and in ways that um, it was just an unforgettable moment of television, and so unexpected, and uh, and just such a brilliant idea by the writer. Mm-hmm to understand you know, what they had having you on that show. That's, um, that's the show creator, Genji Cohen. This is, my, uh, this is my mindset for that, Alana, is that I think that, you know, I've been doing this a long time, as I said, 40 years of, yeah. of content on YouTube. But, um, <laughs> but, but this is what I'm saying is, um, I guess Genji Cohen was growing up you know, and seeing me on Cheers as Cliff Clavin's girlfriend or seeing me as Jeannie and Hare and, you know, and she was growing up as Joy Connors was growing up as um, uh, Tate Taylor was growing up, uh, you know, a, a, a young kid in Mississippi dreaming of a life in film. He wrote the, um, he did the uh, adaptation of The Help, the book to screenplay. Yeah. And he directed it. Yeah. And his first foray into series television for Fox will drop in the fall. And he wrote a role for me in his new series, Filthy Rich. So it's like everyone I see, I kind of, and James Burroughs, I mean, you know, his dad is Abe Burroughs. I didn't know that until I was on Cheers. But anyway. um, All these connections. Yeah. Where where James Burroughs is like, you know, oh no, I've been seeing you on Broadway, you know, forever, Annie. So, So he's the showrunner and the creator and the director of Cheers. And then he says, let's bring Annie Goldman as Cliff, Cliff Clavin's steady girlfriend. You know what yeah, I mean? So yeah, yeah. it's just people have been watching. So with Genji, her idea uh, for Norma was just the ultimate homage to some to make her silent. So if you look at Hair, my first film, film experience, all those close-ups and extreme close-ups of Jeannie 
don't have much dialogue, but they speak right. volumes to the audience. Yep. And then for her to take that, for that, her to take that device yep. and then say, oh, but she's gonna sing to comfort yeah. people when yeah. there is times of trouble. And that was so profound. So if someone on the subway says, can I give you a hug? Or someone on the platform says, you know, can I, can, can I hug you? You know, it's a, you give, it, it's this actor thing of the feedback of, you know how you are perceived by your public. Yep. And Norma is affectionate and Jeannie was affectionate. And um, they're the heart and soul of the pieces that they're in. So I'll be hired to be the, the heart and soul. I, I'll do that. I, yeah. I would love to do that. Yeah, so, that's a pretty yeah. glorious badge of honor. Well, I, um, I really hope that once uh, we're allowed to hug again, that I get an Annie Golden hug. That would really <laughs> mean the world to me. And I cannot thank you enough for spending this time with me today. And I just have one more question for you before we go, if you don't mind, which yes. is, can you share a little known fact about yourself before we say goodbye? Um, a little known fact about myself. Um, well, uh, as I said, my training in high school was, you know, uh, commercial, which is secretarial. Yeah. So I can type 80 words a minute and I can take stenography. And there were two, two kinds back in the day, Pittman and Greg. Right. right. And I took Pittman. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like such an ancient archaic thing, but it's, you know, um, I can do that. So it's kind of crazy that um, uh, sometimes things don't leave you. Can't count to eight and remember a dance combination, whether but, it's Jerry Mitchell or Twyla Tharp. But, but uh, you can do Pittman. Can you write <laughs> me a letter using Pittman stenography? Oh my gosh. <laughs> You can order the cast recording of Broadway Bounty Hunter starring Annie Golden through Ghostlight Records. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City.